A trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. Here we are. It is the Friday before the big election. Or as I like to call it, the last hurrah. Okay, maybe that's a little too pessimistic. Nonetheless, thank you for joining us today. Our sponsors include Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse, Jeff Staples Real Estate, and also the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I appreciate them sponsoring the show. Um, so I want to start with something that uh, is just a little bit heartwarming. In fact, even as I go to do this, I'm, I'm going to just make it real quick, real quick click, and I'm going to share this on Facebook. If you, if you don't follow The Brian Hyde Show on Facebook... I would like to encourage you to do so. If for no other reason, I want you to check out this, uh, this article that I'm about to share. This is one of the most heartwarming stories that I've seen in a while. And because there's so much ugliness, some of which I'll be sharing with you later. <laughs> Sorry. But uh, because I think sometimes we need a little bit of a reassurance that, you know, there are good people to be found everywhere. Sometimes that takes uh, really unexpected forms. The photograph was taken on an airplane, and it shows a young woman, I mean like a teenager, with a, a blind man, and she is signing into his hands. Kind of like uh, Helen Keller style. She's doing sign language into his hands. And the caption here says, I saw this gentleman, Tim, in Boston's Logan Airport with the sister he'd been visiting. It appeared he was both deaf and blind, as I observed her signing into his hand for him to feel her words. When he came aboard the plane, he had been assigned the middle seat of my row. The kind gentleman who had the aisle seat graciously gave it up for him. At this point, Tim was traveling alone. Now, the person writing this says, The flight attendant sincerely wanted to assist him, but they had no way to communicate with this guy. He was deaf as well as blind. The person writing says, I watched as they didn't flinch when he reached out to touch their faces and arms. They took his hand. They tried so hard to communicate with him to no avail. He had some verbal ability, but clearly could not understand them. The man who had given up his seat did his best to assist him with things like opening coffee creamer, putting it in his coffee. When Tim made the attempt to stand up and feel his way to the restroom, his seatmate immediately was up to help him. The flight attendants were talking amongst themselves, and someone suggested paging to see if anyone on board knew sign language. That's when this lovely young woman came into the picture. Fifteen years old, she learned ASL because she had dyslexia. And it was the easiest foreign language for her to learn. So for the rest of the flight, she attended to Tim and made sure his needs were met. The author here says it was fascinating to watch as she signed one letter at a time into his hand. He was able to read her signing and they carried on an animated conversation. When he asked her if she was pretty, she blushed and laughed as the seatmate who had learned a few signs communicated an enthusiastic yes to Tim. The writer says, I don't know when I've ever seen so many people rally to take care 
of another human being. All of us in the immediate rows were laughing and smiling and enjoying his obvious delight in having someone to talk to. And they go on to say huge kudos to the flight attendants of Alaska Airlines who went above and beyond to meet Tim's needs. And then they go on to further say, I can't say enough about this beautiful young woman named Clara who didn't think twice about helping her fellow passenger. It was a beautiful reminder in this time of too much awfulness that there are still good, good people who are willing to look out for each other. So, I know, there's, there's plenty of negative stuff we could be focusing on, but I, I figured let's at least start with this right out of the chute and see how it goes from there. Because like you, sometimes I just need that reminder that there truly are good people out there. And frankly, this is the kind of stuff, these are the kinds of stories that move me far more deeply than, you know, the latest outrage. Did you hear what Hunter Biden did? Oh, you know, the, the daily tattler is all there to get us, you know, fired up and either fearful or angry. Well, when we set it aside for just a few moments, it's pretty clear there, there's a lot of good out there, too. But here's the kicker. You will not see it if you're not looking for it. You tend, to, you tend to find what it is that you're seeking. If you're seeking negativity, if you're looking for a reason, you know, you're looking at your neighbors with those Biden signs on their lawn and you're thinking of those monsters. That's pretty much what you're going to find. So my suggestion is just simply this. Take a little time. See if you can find the good. It's not as hard as it sounds, but it does take a little bit of concerted effort. Better still, it has the uh, tendency to open our eyes to those ways that we can help other people. And if you've been feeling overwhelmed, if you've been feeling, you know, especially upset over what may be coming next week, and I think we've all been there. There is something about caring for another person, whether it's in a big way or a small way. I don't care. I don't care if you've given a $5 bill to some homeless guy downtown, whatever. It will take your mind off yourself. Nothing's going to lift your spirits like helping somebody else. And I mean, sincerely offering some help. All right. That advice is worth exactly what you paid for it. But I promise you, it's nothing that I'm not willing to do myself. I wouldn't ask that of you if I wasn't willing to do it myself. So let's talk about the free market. I thought this was actually a really brilliant piece by Richard M. Lawrence from the Foundation for Economic Education. One of the great measures of the free market is how it improves our lives in ways that we might not immediately recognize. And in particular, he points out how Halloween costumes used to be terrible. But thanks to the free market, the quality and variety of off-the-shelf costumes is, is a perfect indicator of how the free market works and improves our lives. Since Halloween is tomorrow, I figured this might be a good topic to broach. Richard Lawrence says there are many different ways that economists attempt to illustrate how much wealthier we've become over the past few decades and centuries. From the crude yet popular measurement of increasing GDP per capita to showing just how cell phones have miniaturized from their earliest days to become more powerful than the supercomputers of even a decade ago. There's no shortage of ways to show that humanity today is wealthier than ever before. 
But he says, this season, I'd like to suggest a different proxy for our increasing wealth, and that is the dramatic improvement of Halloween costumes. He says, well, he and his husband were recently struggling to figure out their costumes for this Halloween. And he says, we still don't have any idea. He pulled up some old commercials on YouTube. The -the off-the-shelf options that trick-or-treaters had were, in a word, pitiful. Basically, costume makers thought it was okay to make a front-only plastic mask in any color, really, of a character and then top it off with a plastic smock featuring an illustration of said character with either its name or the name of the show it comes from or movie that it comes from. Holy crud, the pictures he's got here, too. This this is reminiscent of every Halloween parade that uh, me and my classmates got to do in, in grade school. There was no attempt to dress in the character's actual attire. If you wanted that, you'd either have to know a professional costumer or cobble together something from your closet. And he gives you some illustrations of just how costume poor we used to be. And I think the, the great measure of this is, you know, it's... For instance, the Chewbacca costume. Yeah, the mask kind of looks like Chewbacca, but so does the smock that you put on that says Star Wars with Chewbacca's face on it. Yeah, it's, it's pathetic and overkill at the same time. He says, obviously, every costume is an opportunity to generate interest in a brand or franchise, and slapping on a logo is an easy way to get a name out there. But he says, these costumes truly heralded a dark time for Halloween. Some may even argue that it demonstrated crass consumerism at its worst, with cynical companies taking the easiest route of grabbing a couple of bucks from desperate parents. The truth of the tragedy of terrible old Halloween costumes has to do with a simple idea, and that is the idea of specialization. Specialization gets us what we want. That's the idea that individuals and companies focus on a particular skill or stage of production in order to produce a specific good or service efficiently. Specialization is also sometimes referred to as the division of labor because it's a process through which economic actors play to their strengths and trade with others to complete a task efficiently. In fact, each of us takes advantage of specialization in the division of labor in the course of our daily life. We rely on others to produce our food, build our houses, and to make our Halloween costumes. We do what we do best to earn money to pay others for the things we can't or prefer not to do. This all makes sense, right? All right, we'll come back to his article in just a few moments. Please stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. By the way, if you'd like to join the conversation, even even if it's just to reminisce about how bad Halloween costumes used to suck... You can call me at 801-331-8113. I'm sharing an article by Richard Lawrence from the uh, Foundation for Economic Education. And it's called Why Halloween Costumes Used to Be Terrible. And, you know, I, I can't disagree with a single thing he brings up here because he has the photographic proof. And I remember this, man. I remember those ugly, stupid plastic masks that you'd put over your face. And there was concern, of course, right? If you're going to wear that around the neighborhood, you might get run over by a car because you can barely see out the little eye slits. You can barely breathe. And even though it was cold, it'd be sweaty. And it just it, they were just pathetic. 
I mean, I look back on some of the childhood photos my mom took of my sisters and me going out trick-or-treating, and it's like, yeah, that was fun. But the best part was when they gave us the candy. The costumes always were pretty... They were pretty bad, to put it mildly. No offense, Mom, but they were terrible costumes. So why have they improved so much in recent years? Well, the answer is specialization, says Richard Lawrence. Specialization, he says, exists in every economy to greater or lesser degrees. The reason we're living today in a Halloween costume renaissance is that specialization truly has gone global. Now, this is not to say that those shameful mask smock costumes weren't made overseas. Rather, that economic production in every area today has become global, allowing people and companies worldwide to trade on their strengths. And this process delivers the necessities of life so well to us today that it has also freed more and more resources for producing the niceties, such as good Halloween costumes. Now, instead of talented Chinese people sewing T-shirts... They're beginning companies and designing Avengers costumes that are being mass-produced in Bangladesh for sale worldwide. Due to increased specialization, yesterday's sweatshop worker is today's entrepreneur, and we all benefit. Economist James Guartney explained how our rising living standards are due to growing, to grow, <laughs> growing global trade. Quote, our modern living standards are almost entirely the result of investment, entrepreneurial discovery, and gains from depersonalized trade. In other words, trade between people who do not know each other and often never meet. As Adam Smith noted, noted long ago, the division of labor is limited by the extent of the market. Much like a telephone or an internet system, a market economy is a good, is a network good, rather. As the size of the market expands from the local town or village to the region, nation, and beyond... Network participants derive larger and larger benefits from trade, specialization, and economies of scale. For those connected to the global market, this system generates employment opportunities, high productivity per worker, and a vast array of consumer goods that are available at almost unbelievably low prices. This network system makes high income levels and living standards possible. End quote. And so Richard Lawrence says the next time you compare our screen-accurate store-bought costumes of Darth Vader and Mr. Incredible to those of yesteryear, he says, remember that we enjoy them today not because previous generations didn't care for accurate costuming, but because growing trade across the globe has generated so much wealth for each of us that we can now demand things we may have only imagined previously. And because I can't resist being just a little bit of a curmudgeon, I'm going to point out. And also, it makes it easier for us to offend the perpetually offended who feel that every Halloween costume is some form of cultural appropriation. I'm only going to touch on that one in passing, but holy cow. I actually, I've had people literally go after me on Facebook. I mean, like, try to, to get to a particular post nuked. Well, this is in violation of Facebook standards. Because it called into question those people who were so upset. You may not dress in this costume or this costume or this costume because, well, because political correctness. So if you could just operate on the idea that uh, basically if it's something that's fun or if it, if it allows you to appreciate another person's culture or celebrate another person's culture, you're wrong. And you should feel bad and you should give them power over you. 
I think that pretty well sums it up. I'm hoping for a day when we can stop taking ourselves so stinking seriously and maybe get back to where we can actually laugh at ourselves once in a while. But that day may yet be down the road. All right. Shifting gears. Wanted to talk about uh, an essay from Leonard E. Reed, and this is actually from Gary Gallas who uh, shared this. This was also on the Foundation for Economic Education website. Abandon the principle of violence. Don't rearrange it. Now, because there's an election coming up, I think this might be something we want to revisit. Someone asked me last week on Facebook, hey, uh, what's an unpopular opinion that you hold? And my unpopular opinion was, if you are casting your vote to punish someone who's doing something that you don't like, you are committing an act of violence. And I realize not everybody's going to hold that point of view. But that's really what it's about. Every act of government, every official bit of policy, and the candidates who promote particular pieces of policy, everything they do is backed with government force. You follow it to its logical end, and there will be men with badges and guns who will come to make you do whatever that policy requires. That's why I think we have to be very, very careful about uh, what policies we enact, what candidates we support, what philosophies we embrace via the ballot box. Because sometimes we're going to get what we're asking for. As H.L. Mencken said, good and hard. So Gary Gallas points out here in Students of Liberty, Leonard Reed drew out the superiority of a society whose organizing principle is virtue voluntarily acted out in practical terms with those we interact with over one organized around coercion, backed by the threat of violence. Now he says, 2020 has been a year notable for violence, threats of violence, and governments who, even, who fail to even try to perform their central function of keeping the peace. He says, it seems that basic virtues which enable a peaceful, productive society are being systematically, or rather make that substantially and progressively, crowded out by coercion backed by violence whether it's mob violence or that directed by the government to enforce edicts that outpace their legitimate duties. And Gary Gallus says that suggests that we should give more consideration to the differences between social cooperation based on the virtues of voluntary arrangements and that based on coercion, which atrophies the muscles of virtue. Now, Leonard Reed, the founder of the Foundation for Economic Education, thought long and hard about this distinction, but perhaps his most insightful discussion came in his 1950 work, Students of Liberty, a a booklet that framed the discussion in terms of violence versus love. And Gary Gallus says, as we celebrate the 70th anniversary of this classic work and Americans contemplate our current elections, the ideas that are presented in that work are worth revisiting. So these are the words of Leonard Reed. He says the principle of violence finds finds widespread application. A citizen is compelled to give of the fruits of his labor to meet the needs of others. Freedom of choice as to what he does with his own capital and income or property is denied him. Freedom of choice gives way to the dictation of an authority backed by brute force. And the government's claim becomes the first lien on everything a citizen owns. 
The reason that most of us do not think of government coercion as meaning obedience under penalty of death is because we acquiesce before the ultimate meaning of compulsion is realized. Here, he says, government was strictly limited. There was a minimum of organized violence. We're going to come back to this in just a few moments, just the other side of our break. But I just have to wonder, and, I, and I'm going to actually wonder with a phone number here, 801-331-8113. What we've covered so far, does this strike you as true? Plausible? Or is it, uh, is it the biggest load of fertilizer you've encountered yet today? I can take it. 801-331-8113. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, once again, welcome back to the show. So this is a pretty thoughtful essay from 70 years ago. And if you haven't read Leonard Reed's stuff, can I just suggest that uh, it is it is some of the most well-grounded, principled material that you are likely to get your hands on. And best of all, you can find quite an archive of it at the Foundation for Economic Education's website, fee.org. Very, very good stuff. So he's talking about abandoning the principle of violence. And how most of us don't realize and don't think of government coercion as meaning obedience or else, like the penalty of death, because we acquiesce before the ultimate meaning of compulsion is realized. He says, restriction and destruction by government to be useful must be confined to that which is bad. So that would be fraud, private violence, conspiracy and theft, other predatory practices. In the original plan, all creative functions were to be carried on by such voluntary, cooperative and competitive elements as the population contained. Government was to be confined to the protection of personal liberty. Aggressive coercion. How this brute force can be used and be considered moral except to restrain violence otherwise initiated is beyond my capacities to reason, wrote Leonard Reed. As a private citizen, the predatory person is only one among millions, but as an agent of government, he becomes one over millions. Reed wrote, I have no faith whatever in any good that can come from these measures based on violence. The political means is communalization by force or legal thievery. It's simply the political device by which citizens pool their votes to extort the fruits of the labor of others. Communalization by force can destroy the society from which it derives its parasitical existence. He says the cause of our ills is a reliance on the principle of violence. When we as citizens turn over to the state an item in the responsibility for our welfare, the state assumes a proportionate authority over our lives. Now, I can hear some people ask, well, what's the alternative then? Leonard Reed anticipated this question and says the alternative to violence is love. The application of the kindly virtues in human relations, such as tolerance, charity, good sportsmanship, the right of another to his views, integrity, the practice of not doing to others what you would not have them do to you, and other attributes which result in mutual trust, voluntary co-option, co- cooperation, rather, and justice. And he asks, why then don't we be done 
with violence. He says, we recognize the principle of love in in most of the aspects of our daily lives without recognizing it. We practice it. But when the, where the violence once takes place, the place of love, most of us seem to conclude that love has forever been ruled out as possible. Aid on a voluntary basis has been all but forgotten. And Leonard Reed says this would be a better world if a trend away from violence could be begun and a trend toward love initiated. But here's the key. He says, love prospers only in liberty. It generates and grows among free men, and as violence begets violence, so does one personal act of kindness beget another. Authority over one's actions is lost precisely in the degree that responsibility is shifted to someone else. Self-improvement is the only practical course that there is to a greater liberty. And then he says, understanding liberty is knowing how to live in a condition where voluntary efforts will be at the maximum and the use of force against persons at the minimum. Every person who has ever uttered the words, well, there ought to be a law, needs to read that until they have it memorized. Understanding liberty is knowing how to live in a condition where voluntary efforts will be at the maximum and the use of force against persons at the minimum. Reed went on to say present day talk and writing, for the most part, is an argument for the rearrangement of the rules of violence. But he says progress is possible only when human energy is freed of restraint. Once the reliance on self is removed, once the responsibility for a portion of our being has been assumed by another, we cease to think about or apply our ingenuity to the activities thus created. Creative thought is abandoned by man as a free and creative agent and assumed by man as an agent of coercion. And so he concludes, understanding liberty requires replacing violence with voluntary action. Now here Gary Gallus steps back in and says, In Students of Liberty, Leonard Reed drew out the superiority of a society whose organizing principle is virtue voluntarily acted out in practical terms with those we interact with over one organized around coercion backed by the threat of violence. And unfortunately, he says, we've been moving down the wrong path. Reed's insights can help us reverse course, which is crucial because the alternative is ominous. The principle of love prospers in a condition of liberty. The principle of violence is destructive of ourselves, of civilization, and of mankind. Now, I'm going to piggyback off of this for a moment and just ask you to consider some of the language you have heard associated with the the upcoming election. How much of that language is violent, violence-based? How much, how much of it brings to mind images of war? You know, we're soldiers, we're marching on, we've got to destroy, we've got to crush, we've got to dominate. And frankly, I've got to hand it to the left. The left has actually come right out and, you know, I mean, certain unbalanced people on the left, like Keith Olbermann, not only are, are we supposed to win, but when we win, we must rid our society of Trump and anyone who ever supported him. We must try them, we must convict them and banish them from our society. I mean, it's... It's the kind of stuff that would have made Fidel Castro blush. And I don't know how you you get through to people who have have passed through that event horizon of irrationality to the point where the only way that they can see a way forward is through exercising coercion against those who don't agree with them. 
And by the way, this happens on the right as well. So don't think, oh, you're really taking it to the lefties here. No, there are people on the right who are the same way. Well, if we didn't have force, Brian, nobody would do what's right. And yet the case here that uh, Leonard Reed was trying to make is that it's only when people freely choose to act out of virtue, voluntarily choose to act out of virtue. That's when you end up with a truly good society. A society of people who are doing the right thing because there's a gun pointed at their heads. I'm sorry, that's not a good society. That's a bunch of people who are afraid of getting their brains blown out, and so they're going to do whatever it takes to avoid that unhappy fate. Their obedience should never be construed as goodness or mistaken for authentic goodness. Because in order for it to be goodness, they have to be free to choose a different path, to choose to do something else, to say no when someone tells them you're going to do this or else. And you can apply this to pretty much anything you want to. All the little sin laws, you know, I, I, you know, some people will disagree with me on this. That's fine. I'm okay with it. I think the war on drugs is a perfect example of this. Not because it's a good thing to do drugs and to get yourself addicted and to burn out your brain cells and possibly risk your life overdosing on heroin or other narcotics or, or whatever it may be. But I think the coercion attempt to try to keep people from doing drugs, it doesn't result in a virtuous society. And it doesn't, it doesn't have the effect of stopping the use of drugs. If you want to live in a society that, that eschews drugs because it's considered an unsuccessful or unhappy way to approach life, it's got to be a society that voluntarily chooses a better way than through trying to enhance reality or trying to escape from reality through some form of self-medication. Well, how could we, uh, how could we deal with those people who, who get uh, out there on drugs and go driving or they you know, go on a rampage or they get drunk or do something like that? Well, I want you to listen very carefully because this is the most carefully guarded secret in the world and nobody's ever tried this before. Well, other than prior to, say, about 1914 and all the drug laws. The answer is this. You hold people accountable for their behavior. If someone engages in behavior that measurably harms another person or deprives them of their property, hold them and only them accountable for what they did. That's it. But what about everybody else? Leave them alone. If they haven't harmed somebody, and I mean really provably harmed somebody, leave them alone. And by the way, I don't I don't guess that Leonard Reed was any kind of a, you know, libertine. You know, he wasn't any hedonist out there encouraging people. Yeah, man, you know, I had four bowls for breakfast. Only one of them was, was cereal. I don't think that's that's his approach. He strikes me just reading his writings. He strikes me as a very moral individual. But he also points out. People have to be able to choose to behave themselves. And anything that's peaceful ought to be permitted under the principle of liberty. Anything that's peaceful. Did you hear that? This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show, 801-331-8113. Just want to mention uh, Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse, one of our sponsors. If you are in or around the Salt Lake City area, I would really strongly encourage you to check out Nikki's. I've I've had people say, "Well, can you explain it to me? What is this? Like this some kind of a uh, some kind of a, a big wholesale food warehouse? It is a warehouse, and I mean like a legit warehouse. It doesn't look like Costco. It doesn't look like Sam's Club. It's a warehouse. Paul is able to get incredible deals on food from food wholesalers, and then he passes those prices on to those who shop." At Nikki's wholesale bulk foods, you'll find restaurant quality foods. You'll find um, bulk, you know, number ten cans and so forth. And here's the best part: if you're working to stretch your grocery dollars, and I know most of us are trying to do this because, uh, look, <laughs> money money is tight. Economic times have been a little bit tough for everybody. This is the place to go. Now, you'll find a wide variety of different items come in at any given time. I've told you before, his selection of frozen meats is some of the best that you are likely to find. Come prepared to buy in bulk, though. If you do your own home canning or if you have a good deep freeze, you will not be disappointed at what you find at Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse. They accept EBT, checks, cash, most all credit cards. And their food is purchased from a local food distribution company that gives them the chance to give you the lowest prices anywhere on produce and grocery items. And in case you're still wondering, okay, but what about to my satisfaction? Everything is guaranteed 100% or your money back. Now, the best option for directions is to jump on their Facebook page, Nikki's N-I-C-K-E-Y-S, Wholesale Food Warehouse. The directions are there. You'll find great pictorials. Paul goes through regularly and takes pictures of what they have in stock. Well worth your time. That's Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse. So, I saw something today on on Facebook that, that kind of caught my eye. And it, w- it was a friend of mine who had uh, had posted kind of an interesting twist on 2020. I don't know if you'll agree with this or not. But I thought this was this was actually kind of a productive way of looking at things. It says plot twist. 2020 has actually been the best year of your life. You face challenge after challenge. You've adapted and you've overcome. 2020 has forced you to grow exponentially. Don't take that for granted. Now, I know I I wanted to shake my head and disagree, too. No, no, this year has pretty much sucked. And (laughs) that's all there is to it. But I think there's some wisdom in that. In some ways, this may have been one of the years where we learned about ourselves and we found that uh, we were made of sterner stuff than we originally thought. And I suppose there's there's something to the idea that you don't learn those kind of things when everything is going so easy and life is just cool and smooth and you're not having to try. It's almost like you, you have to put in some effort to really get your best. So be grateful for it if you can. There's also, I, I found this, uh, this is from the foundation, or I'm sorry, the Future of Freedom Foundation, FFF.org. A great article about COVID-19 and liberty. Christine Smith is the author, and she has a point well worth considering here. She says, if there's one thing we've learned about the public's understanding and practice of liberty from the pandemic, it's that some, when pushed to the brink, 
will rebel. Sometimes for humans to learn, it takes a loss of liberty to awaken them. Currently, millions want their states to open up. The local governments say no. And she says people lost much during this pandemic. Livelihoods, freedom of movement and assembly, freedom of worship, freedom of association. Never has our modern society been so restrictive on American civil liberties. And as a result, mental and emotional health suffered. The economy tanked. And some lost loved ones with whom they were never able to visit during their illness. Weddings, graduation parties, and celebration of life memorials were forbidden unless compliant with whatever government restrictions were implemented in that region. She says simultaneously there was no comfort to be had as visiting friends, family, and churches were relatively off-limits. Travel cross-country, much less across town, wasn't a viable option. Going anywhere without covering one's face was often prohibited. Businesses were shut down. Essential was defined by bureaucrats. She says others have watched in horror as their cities and its businesses have been destroyed by rampaging rioters and vandals, with the police doing little, if anything, to stop it. Lawlessness in the streets amid enforcement of liberty-restricting policies is the reality in some municipalities. And she asks, what if the American people had the chance to learn from this calamity. Infringement on the fundamental rights recognized and enshrined in our founding documents is the greatest threat to America. It's far more dangerous than external threats as it erodes the basis upon which we thrive. She says without these rights respected, we lose what makes us unique in the world. Even in the face of an unknown threat such as COVID-19, the known threat of government overreach looms. Now, just to be clear, she says COVID-19 is a disaster, a health disaster, an economic disaster. It's a, a tragedy of epic magnitude. A thriving economy went to zilch. Its effects will last for years, along with the disastrous repercussions of government policies. The limited and debatable benefits to many of the government mandates implemented in this time are far outweighed by the losses. Do people suffer from viruses? Sure, that's nothing new. It's part of life. Do people suffer when the government restricts our personal choice? Yes, and with ongoing consequences. Less intrusive and respectful of American liberty would have been allowing the free market to adjust as it would have. A free people can arm themselves with knowledge, research, and decide for themselves what social contract they accept. She says, in retrospect, examining the past seven months, giving up intrinsic rights did not make us safer. In fact, it made us poorer in spirit, in liberty and financially. What was to be a temporary two week shutdown to limit a hospital overload due to anticipated and anticipated influx of patients devolved into municipalities and states nationwide implementing their own controls. Many do not now. Many now do not want to relinquish. And the precedent has been established that one's freedoms of movement, excuse me, movement, association and assembly are subject to the arbitrary edicts of mayors and governors. She says the sadness of suffering in its many forms from this pandemic is immeasurable. Yet with it comes an opportunity which some have finally taken to reject infringements on our rights and freedoms. Many people are realizing that such infringements cannot be tolerated. 
as its president poses a grave danger to the way of life we treasure. A concern for our people and nation cannot be allowed to destroy our liberty and our well-being. As for public health, health and medical care are personal, not public, or at least they should be. Likewise, she says the market should be free. Had this been the case, Americans would have had to suffer but not the or not the consequences of their own decisions rather than suffer the consequences of politicians and bureaucrats whose vacillating messages neither inspired confidence nor helped us cope. How and when patients should be treated should would be privately decided between doctors and patients. Truly public properties are the only ones which should be subject to whatever restriction deemed necessary. And inherent in that is the realization that much of what is now public education, for example, should be private to begin with. As such, controversies over teachers and government-running schools run schools rather not wanting to come back to work would be non-existent, as would mandatory vaccines for children attending government school. She says, as for her, she appreciates businesses taking the lead, whether enforcing no mask, no service, or permitting entry to all. She says, I applaud volunteer activities that have blessed millions. And she says, I wisely choose for myself what precautions I take for myself and my family. Should people be restricted from private property if the owner doesn't want them on premises? Yes. Should people be allowed to gather willingly? Yes. Should masks be mandated? No. She says, we live in a wonderfully technologically developed time when many people can choose to separate from the world to a more or less degree. Other persons or people feel lost without their social contacts. Let those believed to be at greater vulnerability to the virus decide their priorities. Life is constantly posing risk assessments to the thoughtful. Does letting people decide, knowing there are both rational and stupid in the populace, violate any civil right? The answer is no. So let each decide with restrictions applicable only when one person's activities would definitely, not speculatively, infringe on that of another. Only in such a liberty-respecting society can we flourish. And she says, I think that's a lesson millions now understand. Again, this is Christine Smith, a writer from Colorado. I'll have it linked in the show notes. You can check it out for yourself at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.